Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's journey through history, we're going to look into the story of the lost gold of the hermit of Benton Harbor, as well as some other stories about the lumbering days, the street fighting, and the sawmills. So come along and join me. So a few weeks ago, I did an episode on this podcast on the early history of Benton Harbor using a reference written by a man named James Pender in 1915. And the title of his book that he wrote was called A History of Benton Harbor and Tales of Village Days. And it includes a combination of local historic events interwoven with anecdotes of the times when Benton Harbor was a village, together with a compilation of other records by James Pender. And that's the full official title of the book. Now, I covered chapters one and two in my earlier episode, giving you a lot of details of the early days of the channel and some of the significant events in town, as well as the sinking of the hippocampus, which he told the story of in those first two chapters. So it's a fascinating early history of Benton Harbor. And so I thought it would continue some of these stories today, which include more of the lumbering industry in the area, as well as some interesting anecdotes about street fighting and a hermit who's got a legend of having some lost hidden gold somewhere in the Benton Harbor area. So let's go through some of these stories in chapter three of this book. So the forests around Benton Harbor were very extensive, and there was an abundance of standing timber awaiting the axes and saws of the woodsmen. A sawmill was established by Samuel McGullion in the woods on East Britain Road. Lumber and building material were manufactured in Magullian's mill, and a considerable portion of this product was hauled into town by ox teams and shipped on sailing vessels by way of the canal. Nearly all of the men who worked in the woods and the sawmill were of the rough and ready class. It was customary for them to come into town every Saturday and indulge in whiskey drinking to the limit. Some of the men frequently became intoxicated and so intoxicated that the saloon keepers would assume responsibility for their safety and put them into beds, locking the doors and keeping them from harm until sober. As it goes with people that drink alcohol in abundance, fighting was a frequent occurrence on the streets. So desperate were some of these fights that a well-known resident of the town was moved to remark, I served three years in the Civil War and during that time never saw more desperate personal encounters than I have seen here on the streets of Benton Harbor. To describe any of these fights would not be agreeable to the writer nor to the reader either, perhaps. Suffices to say that complete peace had not yet settled over the land, and the war spirit still prevailed. Some men, especially when a little intoxicated, would fight on the least provocation. 
This was a characteristic of husky utes who seemed to have a keen delight in getting into the roughest kind of a row. A few good words could be said for the rough and tumble fighters of those days. They never used a deadly weapon of any kind, and no greater injury than can be done with the nature's weapons, the fists, was ever inflicted upon an opponent, with possibly one exception. That was when Charles Peters shot two of the Lysite brothers in a saloon row after a dance in Robbins Hall. Fortunately, none of the shots inflicted a mortal wound, Peters himself suffering great injury when one of his opponents smashed a heavy bottle upon his head. This affray was one of the most desperate and sensational ever known in this part of the state. The fight was between a gang of young men from St. Joseph and a bunch of youths from around Millburg. It occurred in Charles Collins' saloon on West Main Street. The saloon was completely wrecked, and the wounded men were conveyed to the American house where Dr. John Bell was called to dress their wounds, all recovered in time from their injuries. Of police protection, there was practically none. The town had a marshal and a calaboose, but these representatives of the law were entirely inadequate to preserve the peace. When the marshal made an arrest, it was often necessary to have the assistance of spectators to take a prisoner to the calaboose. The term calaboose comes from the Spanish term calaboso, which means jail, dungeon, or cell. And it was used to describe small structures, used as jails throughout uh, the country during that time. Mostly that term was used down in Texas. So he goes on to say that on one occasion, when Cushion Barr, a popular marshal of Benton Harbor, made an arrest, the prisoner refused to go. And then Cush commenced to force him, the drunken fellow, to lay down flat on the sidewalk. Cush called for volunteers. Two men sprang forward, and the prisoner was dragged to the jail. As the sidewalks were very uneven, some high and others low, the prisoner's trip was a rough one. Frank Collins was regarded as one of the town's scrappy men. He was the youngest of the Collins brothers, and he was not what may be termed a drinking man insofar as becoming helplessly intoxicated. On the contrary, he was uh, cleverly shrewd in knowing how to take care of himself in every altercation. He's got sand was a common expression in reference to one with a reputation for courage. The majority of the people could claim this distinction, for there was so much sand in the streets that the village was frequently called Sand Town. George Collins was the elder of the Collins brothers, of whom there were five. The Collins family were among the first pioneers of Benton Harbor. The Collins brothers, with the possible exception of Frank, were not of quarrelsome tendencies and were rarely ever implicated in the fistic encounters in which so many of the young men of that period were inclined to participate in. George Collins was above the average in intelligence and a debater possessed of a personal magnetism that always drew a crowd about him while discussing the issues of the day. Wherever an assemblage on the street engaged in a talk fest, George Collins could be found in the center of the crowd. 
He was a Republican in politics with liberal tendencies. He saw service in the Civil War and participated in the battle at Franklin, Tennessee, and in other engagements. His son, Fred B. Collins, was elected sheriff of Berrien County on the Democratic ticket in the year 1900. He was re-elected to the same office in 1902, serving four terms. He received a large Republican vote together with the united support of his own party, attesting the confidence of the people reposed in him. His administration of the duties of the office of sheriff was very credible to him and an honor to his family and friends. Jesse R. Johnson was a well-known marshal of the village. To him, more than any other one man is due credit for suppressing disorderly fellows and restoring order. Of large proportions and possessed of a savage temper when aroused, Jesse R. Johnson was a terror to would-be bad men. He was left-handed and his physical oddity was an aid to him when handling rough characters. He would knock an opponent down so suddenly that the surprised belligerent could not care for any more of Jesse Johnson's game. He was a Democrat in town where the great majority were Republicans. He served his country in the Civil War as a member of the 1st Michigan Cavalry enlisting at Dwajak where the family home was then located. He fought three years in the war, a part of that time while General George B. McClellan was in command of the Union Army. For this organizer and leader, Jesse R. Johnson cherished a fondness akin to hero worship. Little Mac was his favorite general. Jesse R. Johnson was an esteemed member of George H. Thomas Post, G.A.R., in the latter years of his life. His eldest son, Charles A. Johnson, was elected sheriff of Berrien County on the Republican ticket. In 1907, upon the expiration of his term of office, he was re-elected to a second term, serving four years. Sheriff Johnson was chief of police of the city of Benton Harbor previous to his election to the office of sheriff. He served the people with marked ability and satisfaction to the electorate. Another sawmill began operations in 1864. It was operated by Henry W. Williams and Joseph Pearl under the firm name of Williams and Pearl and was located on the north bank of the Pawpaw River, one mile from town. The mill stood close to the river on the ground near where the metal furniture factory is now. The workmen built their cabins near the mill. These cabins were small, each comprising one room, a bedroom, pantry, and a loft. The loft, which was reached by a ladder, was sometimes used as a sleeping room. There were eight or ten of these cabins in the settlement. The larger building, a story and a half frame, was the boarding house. This was occupied by Mr. Williams and his family, and in it were also housed the single men who worked in the mill. There were few single men, however, as nearly all the mill men had families. Each of these were given a cabin in a garden ground, free of rent or taxes. Henry H. Williams was a generous employer. It was an interesting village of log rafters and lumbermen. The cabins were sheltered from the north winds by the large hill under which they were clustered, and having a south frontage on the river, were very comfortable even in the coldest weather. On the hill above the settlement, there was a frame house of the old-fashioned kind with a south front veranda and a large open fireplace in the main room. This was the Proctor homestead. They were an English family and were among the first settlers in that region. The family comprised six people, Mr. and Mrs. I.B. Proctor, and their four children, William, 
Jane, Susan, and Emma. William was a member of the 7th Michigan Cavalry in the Civil War. Emma married James Vershaw, her brother's comrade-in-arms. To the east of the settlement there was another large frame building. This house was painted white, and it stood upon a hill in the midst of peach trees. It was the residence of Dr. Richard Winans and his large family. It is still known as the Winans Homestead, although none of that family have lived there recently. To the west, there was another large framed building, the Haunted House, standing isolated a short distance from the riverbank. In this house, there dwelt a mysterious man, Harris the Hermit. He was an old man who lived there alone and was said to be the possessor of a great deal of wealth in gold, which he had secured in, in California during the gold rush of 1849. He owned all of that land in that vicinity, excepting the Proctor Farm and the Winans Estate. He would not sell any of his land. Williams and Pearl were unable to purchase a land site for their mill, but were given a 20 years lease by the hermit. Mr. Williams and family occupied a part of the hermit's house at one time while waiting for their own house and on which carpenters were working. Mrs. Williams, while cleaning out the cellar, found a jar filled with gold pieces. She took the jar and then went outside and rapped gently upon the hermit's door. The door was opened cautiously after the hermit had inquired who was there. Mrs. Williams told him about how she found the jar of gold and asked him if it was his. The hermit greedily grabbed the jar of gold and then closed the door and locked it. At another time, a little girl found a $10 gold piece under an apple tree near the hermit's house. It had been brought to the surface of the ground by heavy rains. It was the general opinion of the people who knew Harris and his peculiar manner of living that he had buried a great deal of gold treasure in the ground around his habitation. As this treasure has never been reported found, it may be yet there awaiting lucky discoverers. So that's the story of the hermit's gold. There were a few other settlers in the region at this time. Among them were Joshua Ells, who owned a fruit farm along the riverfront toward Double L Gap and extending north over the hill. Thatcher Hopkins, Colonel L.M. Ward, Orsemers Harmon, William J. Knott, and James Aspel were growing fruit further inland on the hilltop. O. Harmon was one of the first settlers in that region. He came with his family from Ohio in 1853 and had purchased 150 acres, all of which was a vast forest. Mr. Harmon's two sons, E.D. Harmon and W.B. Harmon, aided in the work of reclaiming the land. The Harmon's Homestead is one of the attractive fruit farms on the North Shore Drive. There was no bridge over the Pawpaw River except the one on the East Road, now called Pawpaw Avenue. The products of a mill lumber, lathe, and shingles were loaded on a scow and pike pulled down the river as far as the canal where the stock was sold to local dealers. The passage of the scow down the river was an enjoyable trip for passengers, but not so pleasant for the motive power of the scow. 
The men placed poles on their shoulders and with the steel barbed ends of the poles in the bottom of the river, pushed and walked along on cleats. The cleats prevented slipping as the boat sped along the swift current. The scow was propelled by eight men, four on each side. Mr. Williams always took the helm, standing on top of the cabin and swinging the tiller in a way to avoid contact with snags and to maintain the boat's equilibrium while sailing around the bends. When going around the bend, the captain would sing out, Steady, my men, look out for overboard. Although the scow was much lighter on the return trip, the work of navigating was of no less hard on the polemen, owing to the swift current for which the pawpaw was noted, especially in high water time. The mill owners were compelled to build a boom the entire length of the river eastward from the mill to the forest. The boom was made by chaining long timbers to piles driven in the center of the river. Inside of the boom, the logs were held somewhat like buffaloes in a corral. The logs floated down the river inside the boom, and then they came to the mill waters. There was a tremendous bumping of the incoming logs against those at the anchor. The largest logs, although not the heaviest, were the beautiful white woods. The sawmill on the pawpaw has disappeared, fading from view like the forest with which it was linked, and the village of cabins that clustered around it have all vanished like snow wreaths in the thaw. In this cabin village, games were played, songs were sung, marriages were promoted, and children were born. Dances were a pastime. Hunting was a sport, and going to town and getting on a jag was a diversion for some of the men. Harris the hermit is gone, but if his buried gold could be found, it would prove that there is at least one link between the past and the present that has not succumbed to the changing influences of the time. And that's the story of the lumber days in Benton Harbor and the story of Harris the hermit with his mysterious hidden gold and the fighting in the streets. In those early days of the rough-and-tumble world of Benton Harbor's pioneer days. But that's going to conclude today's journey through history. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to leave your rating or review on whatever app that you are listening on. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. Also on michaeldelaware.com, you can pre-order my book, Victorian Southwest Michigan True Crime, which is going to be released on March 11th. And as soon as the book is available, I will send you a signed copy for anybody who pre-orders with me. Uh, Pre-ordering helps me out a lot. It gives me a prediction on how many books I should order overall. And I've got a lot of a book signing and events lined up. You can find those on my calendar on michaeldelaware.com. And you'll you want to come out and get a signed copy at one of those events, you're welcome to do that as well. I've got many dates on the calendar for March, as well as April and May is starting to fill up right now. And some of those events I'll be speaking at and then selling signed copies of the book. Uh, there's a couple of events there that I'm just going to be there selling the books. Uh, the main one of that is going to be at the Kalamazoo Living History Show. I'll have a table there on March 16th and 17th over at the Kalamazoo Expo Center. But you can come to any one of the other speaking engagements where I'll usually be talking about one of the stories at least from the book. Uh, there's a big event happening over in St. Joseph where they're going to have me talk about five different segments of the book. 
uh, in a very special wine party. So look for that coming up on my Facebook page. Uh, if you want to follow me on Facebook, go to Michael Delaware Author and follow that page because I will be posting the announcements of all the upcoming events that I'm at and that wine event that is coming up on the calendar that's listed there. I believe that one's listed for April sometime. You're going to want to uh, try to get tickets for that early because that's going to sell out very quickly, and that's going to be over in St. Joseph, Michigan in Berrien County. And I'm working with the Berrien County Historical Commission on that event, and they'll be marketing it to their folks as well. And that's limited seating for that event that evening. It's kind of a wine tasting and a murder story night and it should be a lot of fun and then i have another event scheduled over in jackson which is a true crime symposium which i'm working on as well a lot of fun events coming up so this is going to be a very fun year for me promoting the book Uh, but like i said if you want to get a pre-ordered copy go ahead and head on over to michaeldelaware.com and you can also follow me on instagram my handle on instagram is michigan history guy And those are going to be the two main social media outlets that I use is the Facebook page, Michael Delaware Author, and Instagram page. And as always, it's such a wonderful experience to have an audience out there that is interested in learning about little history stories from our southwest Michigan region. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening.